Jeremiah 18. Read it with me. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I'll give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce for a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they'll reply, it's no use. We will continue with our plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations, who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Does its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stubborn in their ways in their ancient paths. They made them walk in byways on roads not built up. Their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the words from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Listen to me, Lord, hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke on their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine, hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death. Their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Well, good evening. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Hunter Bible Church and... I need to confess to you, this week I took a deep dive into the world of pottery. It took me uh, actually way back to my childhood where my mum, she used to do a bit of pottery. She used to make things out of pottery. She had a potter's wheel. 
in our garage for a little bit of a time, a little bit of time. And from time to time, I would actually jump on the pottery wheel and make some kind of formal bowl or or vase. Or if everything just went kaput, you just turn it into a really rubbish-looking ashtray. Not that anyone in our house smoked or anything like that. Anyway, this week I jumped online and I started doing some pottery classes with John the Potter. And needless to say, it was a complete waste of my time. It was half an hour of my life that I will not get back. And there is no pottery wheel that I have, nor is there you know, any chance of me taking up pottery uh, in this lifetime whatsoever. For, but from time to time, we do do Play-Doh in my house. And uh, I'm getting pretty good at Play-Doh. I can make really good snails. You just make it into a long kind of snake-like thing and then roll it up and then give it a little head and you got a snail, voila, it's beautiful. But we also had some air drying clay. And so what I did is I took some air drying clay and I molded it into a mug. Now it was a mug, looks like a cup now, because uh, yeah, the, the handle got broken off by my seven year old uh, as she kind of brushed past the table where it was drying and bang, it went smashed on the side of the ground. Anyway, the rest of it's still intact. And I've just, uh, I've just poured some water into it for a little bit of a test to see whether or not, I don't know if you can see that, but tastes very clayish. <laughs> However, it is holding water, which is, good, which is a good sign. Anyway, um, today in Jeremiah's passage, he also takes a deep dive into the world of pottery. And he spends time with his local version of John the Potter. And he takes both a lesson about God, he, he le sorry, he learns a lesson about God from watching John the Potter and as God speaks to him. And then he teaches the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem a lesson using pottery. So let's have a look. Chapter 18, this is what happens. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Now, I learned about this actually in John the Potter. Uh, sometimes when you're making pottery on the potter's wheel, things go a little bit skew if it doesn't kind of quite work the way that you were hoping that it would work, even if you're a very good potter like John the Potter, and uh, it doesn't respond the way you might think it would respond. And it gets the wobbles, and then you actually have to kind of scrap it you then got to get, get rid of all the air bubbles out of it and start over again. And that's what's happening here when Jeremiah goes and sees his local potter in Judah. So what's the, what's the lesson for him here? What is he learning at John the Potter's house? Well, he learns a lesson about God and his sovereignty. Have a look there in verse 5. This is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel? As this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. So you see what's going on here? God is the potter. Israel is the clay. And, and you actually see this kind of analogy all through the Bible. So for example, in Isaiah, uh, you see this image of the potter and the clay, and it's used to show us that God is our father and he's our creator. Verse uh, 8 of chapter 64. Yet, Lord, you are our sorry, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
earlier on in Isaiah, we're reminded through this kind of potter and clay image uh, that because God is our maker, that, that means he can actually do what he pleases and we don't have the right to push back against him. So in verse 9 of chapter 45, he says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? So this image is used to actually kind of correct the order of creation. There is a creator and there are creatures. And just like it would be absurd for the clay to talk back to the potter, so that's true of us and God. But the point here is something different in Jeremiah 18. It's slightly different to the point that he makes elsewhere. The first lesson is somewhat similar. We learn in Jeremiah 18 that the potter decides what he plans to do with the clay without seeking the clay's permission or opinion. And the end product is whatever the potter finally decides the product to be. God is the potter. He creates, he molds and fashions his people in whatever way pleases him. But because if you've been with us in the, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been preaching about God's judgment for chapters and chapters and chapters. And last week, we actually saw that Jeremiah kind of urges God to relent from sending disaster on Judah and Jerusalem. And so you kind of expect that the lesson might be here, Jeremiah, if I plan judgment, then judgment it will be. And you need to be okay with that because I'm the potter and you're the clay. And... But that's not the lesson. The Bible certainly teaches God's sovereign rule and ultimately that he will choose what he wants to do with Jerusalem and Judah and the nation of Israel and, and with anyone for that matter. In Romans 9, for example, it makes this point very clearly. In chapter 9, verse 19, uh, Paul says, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why do you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? But here, as Jeremiah watches John the potter in real life, God is saying something slightly different. God is saying to him, don't I have the right to change my plans? So have a look in verse 7. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted and torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I'll relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So Jeremiah has been preaching judgment and he's been preaching judgment to his own detriment and safety for years. And, and now God is saying, if they repent, then perhaps I'll relent. Perhaps I'll change my mind about my plans and, and, and respond to their repentance with mercy. Perhaps I won't give them what they deserve. And then the flip side of that coin is what if God makes all these promises about a nation being built up and planted and then 
they refuse God and they disobey him and they do evil, does not, doesn't he have the right at that point to reconsider the purposes for which he made the nation? Now, I actually think this is saying something beautiful about God in his sovereignty, in his divine control of our universe. The way that he interacts with his people is not with a kind of predetermined, spin-the-wheel, hands-off way of doing things. He doesn't just set and forget. Now, the way God executes his sovereign will is by continually responding to our human responses to his declared plans. And then God can change those plans for good or for ill accordingly. You actually see this take place in a number of places in the Bible. One of the clearest places we see it is in the way that God interacts with the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. So he says to Jonah, he says, go and preach a message of judgment, Jonah. And the message is 40 more days, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so Jonah goes, he's very reluctant. He goes though, and he preaches this message of judgment. And what happens? Well, the whole city repents and turns back to God. And God relents from sending disaster. So in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now what happened to the coming judgment? Well, God holds the right to change his plans. Chapter 18, verse 7 of Jeremiah, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted and torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So what's happening here is that God is actually responding according to his character. He is faithful to his character, even as he relents from sending disaster on the people of Nineveh. And you get a really clear sense of this in the book of Jonah. Jonah, you see, is actually, he's not very happy about this at all. He's not happy about God's change of heart. He gets his nose all out of joint about it. He gets angry about it. And the reason he says to God is, he says, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew that if they turned back to you, if they repented, then you would respond with mercy and grace. So he says in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So he says, I knew what your character is like. And he knew the way that God responds to repentance is with mercy. And God's making this point all over again with Jeremiah. He's saying, I'll respond in a way that's consistent with my character, with my name, depending on how the nations actually respond to proclamation of the judgment that is to come, whether that's Israel or any of the other nations. If he chooses to judge, it will be good and right and consistent with his character. If he chooses to relent, it will be right and consistent with his character. See, God is not actually bound by his own word. His word is trustworthy, it's true, it's faithful, it's dependable. You can bet your life on the word of God. But God is not bound by his own word. 
He can do what he wants with the clay. Now the question, the big question of Jeremiah is, is well, how is Judah and Jerusalem going to respond? What are they going to do with this warning from God? And you see it in verse 11. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So the warning comes, mercy is on offer, but their response is heartbreaking. We will continue with our own plans. We're going, to be continue, we're going to continue to be stubborn and refuse God. And God is saying here, I've been patient and open and willing to adjust my plans like, like a potter working with clay. And even for the last time now, as I warn you of what lies ahead, I urge you to come back to me. And they say, we'll continue with our own plans. Now, what's that going to mean? Well, it means that when judgment comes, they won't be able to say, God never warned us. They won't be able to say, he never told us that this was coming. He never gave us a way out. What is shocking here is that God clearly holds the people of Israel responsible for the behavior that is calling forth his judgment. And friends, the same is true for us. We will be personally held accountable for how we respond to God's warning of judgment. See this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he goes into a city that's full of idols, the city of Athens, and he gives this great big speech. And he lands the speech by saying, chapter 17, verse 30, he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, friends, judgment is coming. And the proof of oncoming judgment is the resurrection of Jesus. That is the great signpost that says, repent, turn back to God. And so be careful that you don't just continue with your own plans. Be careful that you do not just keep following after the stubbornness of your own hearts that are inclined to refuse God. But repent and live your life under the rule of Jesus. See, the great tragedy of this passage is they were warned. The signpost was there and they just keep walking. They just keep ignoring. And it kind of intensifies in the next chapter. Have a look in chapter 19. Jeremiah returns right at this point to the potter's house and he's told to buy a piece of pottery from the potter. So he might buy a piece of pottery that's as quality as this kind of piece here. Now, I'm guessing at this point that the potter is somewhat pleased that he actually buys something from them because there's nothing worse than the person who just goes into the shop and just walks around and looks at things and doesn't actually buy anything. That's me in surfboard shops all the time. I put surfboards under my arm and I don't have any money to pay for them, so I just walk out without buying them all the time. And then in chapter 19, he says, he says this. So God says to him, Go, Jeremiah and buy a clay jar from a potter. And the reason he buys this clay jar from the potter is to use it 
as this big illustration of judgment. So in verse 2, this is what he said to do after he buys the clay jar. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Listen, I'm going to bring disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. So he's to take this big clay pot. It wasn't a small clay pot like this one. It was a big clay pot. And he was to take it out into the valley via what was called the potsherd gate. The potsherd gate was probably in the south wall of Jerusalem. And it's thought to be the exit through which broken pottery and refuse was kind of carried out into the city dump. And so he carries this big clay pot through the potsherd gate with the elders of Israel with him, elders of Judah with him, I should say. And, and there's all of these broken pieces of pottery on the, on, on the ground as he walks out of the city. And then it says in verse 10, have a look there, then break the jar while those who are going with you are watching. And say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. So he takes this big clay pot, right? This massive big clay pot, brand new, straight from the potter's house. And he says to the leaders of God's people, he says, this is what God is going to bring about. And then he smashes the clay pot. It's this dramatic illustration of judgment. Dramatic illustration to show them what God is going to do to the people of Judah and Jerusalem because of their disobedience. Now this drama is accompanied by what I think are some pretty heavy words. Have a look there in verse 7. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hand of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as foods to the birds and to the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all of its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read passages like this in the Old Testament, I find it kind of weighs heavy on me. It makes me feel like, oh, maybe those questions about the goodness of God and that maybe those accusations that God is callous and harsh and vindictive, maybe there's some truth in those things. But there's a couple of things that we need to realize about these words of judgment. And the first is, is that God's description of judgment and what takes place in what is about to take place in Jerusalem here was really just describing the terrible fate of cities under prolonged siege. This is how war was done. They marched up to the city walls and they sat outside those walls until the people inside perished. And so in 597 BC, when Babylon laid siege upon Jerusalem, 
when that prophecy came true, when the agent of God's judgment, Babylon, actually turns up on the front doorstep of Jerusalem, what is described here is simply the types of things that would end up happening in these prolonged sieges. People would starve and die, and they would do, in the meantime, whatever it would take to survive. The other thing to realize is that for Judah and Jerusalem, these are ancient warnings. This is not the first time that God has spoken to them about these things. It's not the first time he's warned them that things will go bad if they refuse him. What Jeremiah is saying to them here is exactly what was talked about in the blessings and, and curses way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When the law of the Lord was read out to the people of God and they made a covenant with him as they were about to go into the promised land for the very first time. This is what it says. They will lay siege to all the cities. So this is one of the curses. Throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. Because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb. The flesh of the sons and daughters of the Lord, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord has given you. Even the most gentle and most sensitive man among you will not will have no compassion on his own brother, or the wife he loves, or his surviving children. See, in the context of the whole of the Old Testament, God's judgment here in Jeremiah is not a fit of fury, but it's slow. It's measured, it's calculated, it's careful. And it comes after warning upon warning upon warning. You see, friends, God is slow to anger and abounding in love. In our world today, there are very few models of righteous anger. When we see anger, it is usually a fit of fury, not slow, measured, deliberate anger. Maybe you've worked in a workplace where you never quite know what context, what, what it's going to be like that when you walk into that office. Maybe you knew a father or a mother who was prone to fits of rage. Even the very best of us are prone to fits of anger. But this is not God. And his warnings of judgment are always a call for repentance. But sadly, the way that Judah and Jerusalem respond is predictable. Have a look in chapter 20, verse 1. When the priest, Pasher, son of Imma, the, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten up and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. See, there's still no repentance. Still no remorse. They just say, let's bash him. Let's beat him up to shut him up. Now we could at this point kind of dig into the sufferings of Jeremiah here because they're severe. His sufferings are, are real, right? In chapter 20, you actually begin to see uh, the extent of his sufferings and the horrific effect that actually has on him. He says in chapter 20, verse 18, he says, why, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? That, that is the effect that his sufferings, his persecution have on, on the prophet Jeremiah. But what I actually want us to dig into is why, uh, what are they seeking to do when they beat him up? Why do they beat him up? 
What's the point in doing that? Well, if you go back to chapter 18, you begin to see some of the thinking that goes into their impulses. Chapter 18, if you look there in verse 18, it says, Come, let's make plans against Jeremiah, for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. So, so both, both in chapter 18 and chapter 20, the reason they speak against Jeremiah and the reason they beat him is because, well, they just hate the word of God. They don't want to listen to the word of God. And nothing changes when Jesus comes onto the scene. What do they do to God's son? They kill him. Why? Because they hate the things that he proclaims. And when he's resurrected and his people begin to preach about him, what do they do? They persecute them because they hate the word of God. They hate the news of the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, we see this. Stephen is under trial and he gets this opportunity to defend himself in the midst of this trial. And instead of defending himself, he preaches. And his sermon essentially outlines the history of Israel. And its climactic point is this, verse 51 of chapter 7. He says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the, the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. So what do they do with this news? that they have rejected and, and, and murdered God's king? Are they cut to the heart and, and turned back to God in repentance and faith? No, not at all. Verse 54, it says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. They beat Jeremiah up to shut him up. They murder the Son of God on the cross because of who he claimed to be. And they stone Stephen because he shows them from their scriptures just how hard-hearted they really are. Jeremiah, Jesus, Stephen, they've done nothing but proclaim the word of God. And what they're doing here is they're attempting to silence the word of God through violence. Right? This is the cancel culture of the ancient world in the first century. Today in our Western civilizations, people's hearts are just as hardened to the word of God. There's actually no difference, no difference at all between the people of Jeremiah's day and Jesus' day and Stephen's day to today. Right? And back then you could beat people up, you could stone them to shut them up. 
In, in the West, though, what we do is we write newspaper articles or we shame people on social media, but the heart of the issue has not changed. How do they put it in Jeremiah 18? We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. And that's exactly why they beat him up. That's exactly why they caused, why they murdered the Son of God. That's the reason that they stoned Stephen. And it's the reason why persecution takes place today. And it's the reason why people just quietly refuse the gospel when we speak about Jesus. Because they want to follow their own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our own hearts. We will just go on doing about what we were doing things. It's not logic. It's not reason that turns people away from Christianity. It's not because it's made up. It's not because God is not good. It's not because, it's not because the church's view of sexuality is outdated and so therefore needs to be done away with. <clears throat> but it's because people want to continue with their own plans. And I think in some ways this has been one of the biggest blessings of COVID. People have not just been able to continue on with their own plans. They've had to stop and stay at home and contemplate. And that's been hard for people, yeah. But it's actually forced us to contemplate the meaning and purpose of life. And you know, when lockdown ends, on whatever date it's going to be, sometime in October for those who are fully vaxxed, there are other things that will force us to think about meaning and purpose. Because our nation's approach to COVID-19 is switching. It's switched, we've changed strategies. The rhetoric now is we need to learn to live with COVID. And so COVID will be on everyone's front doorstep. We will be faced at that point with different questions, but still massive questions about meaning and life and purpose. So how do we respond? Well, the first thing is, if you have ignored God's message in your life up until now, then can I urge you to repent and to turn back to God, trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. If that's something you need to do, then please contact us. You can shoot a text to that text line that they've been showing throughout the service. And we would love to help you work out who Jesus is and what he's done for your life. But if you're a believer, well, I think the answer is to pray for our world's forgiveness. But that's actually different to what Jeremiah prays in, in these chapters. In chapter 18, come back with, with me to chapter 18, verse 20. This is what he says, looking back. He says, remember that I stood before you and spoke on their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. Right? So if you remember from last week, Jeremiah was actually pleading for God to forgive them. But he actually shifts in this passage. His, his prayers turn from prayers for forgiveness and salvation to, to prayers asking for God's justice to come upon them. Have a look in verse 23. He says, But you know, Lord, but you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. 
So, so what Jeremiah asks for is that God's threatened judgment would actually finally fully fall upon Judah and Jerusalem, and particularly those who were compounding their sin by, by persecuting Jeremiah at this time. And I think what we see here is that Jeremiah's emotions and words, well, they sit hard with us, don't they? But they're actually in tune with God's heart. You see, as he, as he cries out these words of broken-hearted love and he's actually he's seeking to avert God's anger through his prayers, and at the same time, when he's praying for the fulfilment of God's coming judgment, those tensions and those contradictions in the, in the heart of Jeremiah, I think we actually see them in the heart of God as well. He's slow to anger, but abounding in love. But his words are very full on here, aren't they? Should we ever pray that God would not blot out their sins? Can we ever pray that this side of Jesus? Given that this side of Jesus, we're actually in the day of salvation. And we know that on the final day, God's judgment will be right and good when it fully and finally comes. But what does Jesus pray for his enemies as he dies on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. What does Stephen pray as he's been stoned to death? Well, he says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So so we've got Jesus and he teaches us to pray for our enemies, even in the midst of persecution. And And he models that for us as he dies on the cross. Why? Well, because today is the day of salvation. God is actually holding off the return of Jesus, longing for people to repent and turn back to him. And so, friends, I want to urge you again this week to pray for our nation. Pray for people's forgiveness and salvation. Pray for those who hate the gospel. Pray for those who are just kind of indifferent to the gospel. Pray for friends that you're hoping to share Jesus with. Pray for our life teams and Christianity Explored teams as as they share Jesus with people week in, week out. Pray that even in these uncertain times, we as a church and as individuals would be able to find ways in which we could proclaim Jesus to our city. And pray that thousands, thousands would place their hope in him, yeah? Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. And God, as we see your heart on display here, we thank you that you respond to us in our circumstances. And we know, Lord, that what you choose is right, what you choose is good, even when that's difficult for us to accept. But we thank you that your character and your name is always at the very forefront of the decisions that you make for this world. We thank you that whether it's judgment or salvation, what you choose will always be right and good. And Father, we pray for our city. We pray for our friends, our neighbours, We pray for those who hate the gospel. We pray that they will contemplate 
the meaning and purpose of life, that your spirit would be at work in them and urge them towards repentance and faith. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.